What will make you successful is if you can actually execute and deliver your technology from a concept to a product. And if you're armed with a plan on how to do the execution, I mean, much easier to then go raise money. Um, but what we see is that there are a lot of great thoughts out there that people don't know how to turn that into a successful execution plan that they can realistically deliver. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. In this episode, Quinn Jacobson, director of the Technical Entrepreneur Coaching Hub at Carnegie Mellon University, joins us to talk about successful execution strategy at deep tech startups. And in our conversation, we talk about frameworks for your execution strategy, initial proofs of concept, demonstrating concrete value in the early stages. We talk about finding your ledge and supporting your long-term vision through intermediary value creation opportunities and a ton of other great stories from Quinn's experiences as a serial founder and VP of engineering. Let me introduce you to Quinn. Quinn Jacobson is a professor of the practice at the Information Networking Institute in Carnegie Mellon University's College of Engineering. He's based in CMU's Silicon Valley campus and the director for the new Technical Entrepreneur Coaching Hub, or Tech, initiative. Tech is focused on preparing the next generation of technical founders and strengthening CMU's engagement with the startup community. Quinn's also part of CMU's Neuromorphic Computer Architecture Lab. Prior to joining Carnegie Mellon University, Quinn led engineering efforts at several innovative startups in high-performance distributed software systems and domain-specific hardware accelerators. Quinn co-founded Vibrato Technologies, a venture-backed CMU spin-out that created the first truly smart apparel, before discovering his passion for startups, Quinn worked on advanced technology development. He developed the world's first commercially released soft core for FPGAs at Altera, architected the world's first multi-core Spark microprocessors at Sun Microsystems, and led the development of one of the first crowdsourced smartphone services at Nokia. Enjoy our conversation with Quinn Jacobson. The first thing I want to say is, is welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. How are things going? Oh, it's great to be here. I'm excited to go into a new year and see what new opportunities it brings. That's very thematic for our conversation because I feel like you're working a lot with folks at the very beginning of an important phase of their life. And there's a lot of, I think similar to a new year, there's a lot of optimism and excitement and energy in that phase where people are starting a business, where there's the idea and then they're building. Is that like a fair relation that like the, the excitement of new years is also the same sort of excitement for entrepreneurship? Oh, yes. And that's what I love about working with early entrepreneurs is the whole world is wide open. Not all endeavors are successful, but they're all exciting and they're all learning opportunities. You know, even the ones that we learn more than maybe anything else, they're still beneficial. Absolutely. And why I've been really excited for our conversation is, on one hand, the perspective that you bring sort of covers like the whole life cycle of entrepreneurship from becoming an engineering leader to starting your company, from both being an engineer, being an engineering leader, and then being a co-founder, founder, technical founder, all of those different types of roles. The first question I wanted to ask you more so from the beginning is, what motivated you to transition into this, this role where you're in now, where you're paying it forward and you're teaching folks about becoming a technical founder uh, through your work at Carnegie Mellon, like what motivated you to make that transition and what were some of the startup world experiences that inspired that transition? Well, I did the transition myself. You know, I went from being a technical expert at a big company to founding my own company and being an entrepreneur. And I learned so much the hard way about how much different it is to be the technical expert than to be a founder and run your own company. And talking to other people, all of us who've gone through that, 
there was huge learning curves. And I've tried to help a number of early startups recently. And I realized there was a lot of common problems that I thought would be really exciting to see if we could make a scalable solution where we could try to produce content to really help early founders see the path forward and be more successful. I'm excited to get into some of those solutions. I know we've, we're going to talk about a couple of those, but kind of one more thing about Carnegie Mellon, like what have you found to be the most gratifying when it comes to giving back to folks that are early on in their founder journey? What has been like the most gratifying part of that experience for you? The thing that I find most exciting is to watch something new go from an abstract to a realization. And that's one of the things that really excites me about this is our industry has been driven by new waves of technology coming in. And it's hard. It's hard to bring new technology into a market and make it successful, especially disruptive technology. That's what we all get most excited about. It is the disruptive plays that are the most exciting and the most impactful. And our goal is to make those possible. When I think about bringing a new idea to life in the form of a dramatically world-changing business or a technologically shifting paradigm or business is absurd. And so I think that's something that I, we don't recognize enough on this show is like for people listening, they're probably early on in their journey and you know they have an idea of how they want the world to be and they see different technical applications of certain technologies that could help shift the world in that direction. And the audacity to do something like that is absolutely incredible. Along that, I wanted to ask you about your own startup experiences that inspired this shift to want to help prepare the next generation of founders, either the different companies or the different moments that sort of inspired your passion for entrepreneurship and the, the founder's journey. As a first-time founder, I was really overwhelmed and underprepared for the breadth of material that comes under your control. That transition from being a very narrow technical expert to being responsible for everything. And the thought that I could help others be more prepared for that and so that they can get that really cool disruptive thing in their head out. And also I just love to see the cool things they're working on. And even if I can play a tiny part in other people getting all these cool new things out there, that is very fulfilling for me. One of the things that really stood out to me with some of the work that you're doing is really focusing on this idea of technical execution as like the key to help folks be successful in this goal of helping achieve their, their vision. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what's the context behind this challenge of technical execution and maybe you could share like your perspective on why this is such a significant hurdle that, that different founders face along their journey. I think there's too much emphasis made on trying to get that initial seed funding. It's important. You have to get off in the initial seed funding, but that is not going to make you successful. What will make you successful is if you can actually execute and deliver your technology from a concept to a product. And so we really wanted to take that harder and more core problem. And if you're armed with a plan on how to do the execution, I mean, much easier to then go raise money. Um, but what we see is that there are a lot of great thoughts out there that people don't know how turn that into a successful execution plan that they can realistically deliver on. I've noticed a theme or trend in maybe the last couple months, and this sort of connects with the current economic climate or the current fundraising climate 
businesses and companies have struggled to raise money because of maybe that lack of an execution plan or the unclear sort of path forward to build a viable business, or it's it's unclear that fundraising journey as people are sharing it. And so for me, that kind of stands out to like why execution seems to be so important now. Have you found this focus on execution is resonating more with people as sort of the funding environment has changed in the last year or so? Like, have you found that resonate differently with different founders on their journey? Yes. And I think both with founders and with the venture community. And one of the things is, as we developed this program, we worked very closely with the venture community to see from their experience and how they're trying to get success out of their portfolio that that execution and about having incremental value creation so that in the early stage, you're creating something that can have demonstrable value. Because too often we have this vision of where we could get to after some number of years and after we have you know millions of users. But the real challenge is how do I get something that demonstrates a technology, creates real value, and can be realized in that 12 to 18 month horizon with very finite resources. And that's what gets you from that initial seed funding to an A round funding or from an A to a B is that ability to execute and create that value that you can demonstrate and carry forward to grow to the next level. I think the way that you you illustrated that provides like a really clear roadmap or framework for where founders should be focusing on in those early days is that it's not just the idea or the technical application, but it's being able to create that pathway and to meet those time constraints. For somebody maybe who's early on in their journey and they're starting to think through how to do that for themselves, like what advice would you have for somebody beginning to build their execution strategy, like what advice would you have to help them succeed, especially in the context of a deep technology startup or a more technically differentiated company? What advice would you have for them? And that's why I'm most interested is, are these technologically different, innovative plays? And I think one of the keys there is to try to figure out what is your core differentiation? What can you build? to start to instantiate a piece of what is at your core differentiation. And what you'll find often as you start is that what you thought were the hard problems you were going to have to solve may not be the hardest problems. You might find something else pops up. When we were doing wearable, I thought we were going to have problems with the sensors and the biomechanical modeling. But as we started building working prototypes, we realized that the garment side was actually much harder than the electronic side. You have to start building something, some little piece of it, so that you can actually realize what is easy to build and what is hard to build to get to where you want to be. I think that's an incredible early story of how your hypothesis or assumptions at the beginning totally shift as you begin the building process. How should somebody think about building their initial proof of concepts? Are there any approaches or principles that you might recommend as somebody's beginning to build out that initial proof of concept? Don't worry about how ugly those early prototypes are, right? You don't want to worry about what it looks like. You want to worry that it actually implements that core piece of technology of yours or what you think is going to be your core differentiation. The trick is how quickly and cheaply you can prototype something. And it's amazing, you know, if you don't mind breadboarding on your dining room table, what you can actually build inexpensively um, on your own or with a very small group of people. 
Going back to what you referenced with the wearable story and building an initial proof of concept and having your assumptions shift, what did the, that initial proof of concept look like in that case? Or is there a favorite moment from other founder journeys that you've had that the proof of concept led to something different? No matter how simple you try to start, you often realize that you can actually go smaller and simpler to prove your concept. So when we first started with the wearables, we tried to make a shirt with sensors up and down the arms and the torso. And then we realized that we could actually demonstrate with a single limb. So we moved from a shirt to just a sleeve. And that sort of figuring out as you build how you can actually narrow down and go even simpler, even smaller, and yet still be able to hit all the key pieces that you're trying to work on. With that example, how did you use the results of those early concepts to either drive the evolution of the product forward or the funding for the business forward? What did it look like to take those insights and help the company and the product evolve? So we went from the sort of concept of wearables that could do real-time biomechanical analysis and feedback to building a prototype, which, as I said, we started with full body, but then we went to this one sleeve, and then we got down to something that was simple enough, small enough, and it was something that you could quickly slide on. And then we went and looked, and we said, what can one limb do real interesting? And we said, well, basketball, sh shooting a basketball. You shoot basketball primarily with your dominant arm. There's a lot of biomechanical mistakes we can detect and correct with that one arm. And here's the thing. We did this all before we got any funding. My co-founder and I, out of our own bank accounts, prototyping this on the super cheap. But we built a prototype that we could then take. Actually, when I went to one of our investors, I went and scouted out their parking lot before we went and realized they had a basketball hoop. And so we actually, when we went, said, why don't you come outside? And we put the sleeve on the investor and had them shoot the basketball with it and get the feedback. And so, you know, getting down to the point that something that you can create that someone can actually experience and see what the technology is going to do. I have to imagine that shifted the conversation dramatically because I feel like basketball is a pretty connecting and accessible sport. There's a lot of people that are fans of basketball. A lot of people play basketball. Um, how did that shift the conversation to have that investor actually get to try on the sleeve and experience the proof of concept? Well, I think that was the huge differentiation we had is that we were able to take something which is fairly disruptive technology and yet make it so that you could actually firsthand experience it. And that's challenging. Not all technologies can you do that. But when you can, that is so much more impactful and completely changes how you're trying to explain it because now they're experiencing it. And now they're getting excited. And now they're saying, okay, yeah, but what about my golf swing? And then the conversation go all over the place. As somebody, my, my background, my education background is in the physical therapy space. And so I was always fascinated by the biomechanics lab and some of the different feedback that you can get from different elements. And now like most of the products that I get targeted on my, you know, social media feeds are some of these emerging tools that help provide the, the live coaching. Like one of them is like a insert in your ski boot that's supposed to give you better feedback on your turns as you ski. And for me, that's like my preferred winter sport. And so I'm obsessed with these types of things and, and like the live feedback. And so like the lesson I take away from that is the more that people can feel and see the possibility of your product, the more impactful that pitch can be. But then also it's easier for people to see the path forward for how your technology and the application of that can make a transformation or help you accomplish your vision. Exactly. We talk about feedback, right? One of the things we really struggled with is how do you give feedback to people? If you've got someone who's shooting basketball, they can't look at their phone. 
while they're out on the court. And so one of the challenges is really to try to think about the full experience of how does your technology interact with the user? And we realized that we had to go to audio. You're out on a basketball court. You don't have any screens. You have to put a speaker there and have the device give you immediate audio feedback. I like this idea about thinking about the full experience with the technology that you're engaging with. I want to go back to one thing that you had mentioned. Part of the path is being able to create incremental value creation and to think about that through the life cycle of your long-term vision and then your early proof of concept. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about this approach to value creation and breaking that down into different levels. Can you share maybe a little more about like why this challenge is so hard for more technically differentiated startups? When you're creating a fundamentally new technology, it often requires that you replace many different steps of the process for it to fit in. And that's one of the biggest challenges is actually to figure out how you can take your new technology and fit it in as much as you can to some existing flow or infrastructure, because elsewise you're going to take on this sort of boil the ocean problem that you have to replace everything around you for your piece to be successful. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is saying, I have this disruptive thing, but I need to figure out how I can get to market in a way that I don't have to rebuild everything around it or change the way people interact. In the sort of wearables world, we didn't want to change how athletes go through their practice. So if we're going to completely change that, that's too disruptive. No one will adopt it. So how do we make something that's easy for them to work into their existing workout flow? I also come from the world of chip architecture and making new accelerators. One of the big things I've been involved with the last few years is chiplet. Because if I want to make a new AI accelerator, one of the problems is traditionally I have to go build the IO interfaces, memory controllers. I have to build this massive chip with lots and lots of IP blocks on it, of which most of those don't actually relate directly to my differentiation. Now, if we can go to a world where I can build only my core value onto the piece of silicon, and then I can go talk to someone else's piece of silicon to give me all those PCI bus and memory bandwidth and all that, then I can scope down what I need to do for my product to be successful. This idea of fitting within the existing infrastructure is really interesting. A company that I know about is in the carbon capture space, and, and one of the ways that they sort of fit this model and approach is they wanted to affix devices onto existing infrastructure. So like larger industrial machinery. So oftentimes like intake vents on like large commercial buildings or the towers of like a, a larger factory or industrial facility to then like do the, the actual carbon capture. And for them, the idea was like, there's already so much existing infrastructure. Why build a new thing to do the modality that you're looking for? And so I think that's it's a really interesting way to think about the application of your technology and how to think about how to roll that out and introduce that. Yes. And the more you can fit into the existing environment ecosystem, the easier it is for your technology to be adopted. What advice would you have for somebody who is looking at their early idea and is trying to find for themselves, like, what is their value creation ledge, like that first ledge, or to build that roadmap for what does the value creation look like at different phases of, of this technology? What might you recommend for that person to do that for the first time and to start to demonstrate the concrete value, both in the early stages, but also along the, the journey of the, the product? The first step is to really understand what is your value proposition and differentiation. 
because you have to be able to get that real crisp because then you can focus your effort on that part of it and not get distracted by maybe all the related and tangential pieces of the technology. And the other thing is, you know, look for incremental steps that may not, you may not even intend to do, but that protect you. If you're building something, is there a point that you can get enough of a demonstration that you could then license it? That may not be your end goal, but if you can show that in the worst case, I'm going to create something I can license, that gives you sort of a safety net. And that helps with when you're talking to your investors and trying to get leverage with your investors to say, hey, I'm going to create something. It's going to have value. I have this much bigger, grandiose vision. I'm going to create a lot more value. But I do know that in this first 12 months, I'm going to make something that is on its own valuable and useful to Going in a little bit of a different direction, I was I was talking with Jerry Lee a little bit about this phenomena that first-time founders can run into, which is there's a lot of mistakes that you can make doing this for the first time, whether that's because of naivety or being so close to the company and the problem that you become too controlling. And I think for technical leaders that are maybe more so than others, like because you have such a mastery over the craft that you can have this predisposition for being too controlling over the the technology. And so what him and I were talking about was like this question of how do you as a first time founder balance being too involved in like the vision for the technology and stifling maybe the people that are responsible for it? Um, and how do you balance that or be mindful of that? I think there's two really important things. You know, one is those early partners you're bringing in as co-founders or your early hires, you have to really trust for success, that core team, you can't overlap, you can't waste time double checking each other. You have to just trust each person's going to do their thing and that's going to get you to where you need to be. But the other thing I think is that people don't bring in advisors who are a little bit more removed enough. Getting someone who is very aware of the industry or the field you're in, who can come in and give an outsider perspective a bit early, can be really valuable to help you see when maybe there is a better obvious path if you take a step back and kind of look at the bigger picture. Absolutely. Are there other traps that you've identified that early founders can fall into when they're starting a more technically differentiated startup or a deep tech startup? Are there other things that for people doing it for the first time that you've a pattern that you've seen that people fall into that we could flag for folks ahead of time? When you're coming from a big company where you could push something with the resources and the ability to go push suppliers and channel partners to adopt new stuff, you come with this mentality of, if I build this, I could get it to market. When you're in a startup, you suddenly don't have that leverage with your suppliers or your channel, and you realize that you have to be much more agile and adapt because none of us ever get it right in our initial vision. And so being very aware that you're not going to get the slam dunk right away, but what you're going to need to do is really listen and talk to everyone you can and hear when your what your channel or your suppliers or your partners are telling you, because that's where you're going to say, aha, here is a path where even as a small player, I can get my technology in the hands of someone who wants it. Um, and it's probably not what your initial thought was on day one. 
It's so hard to capture the magnitude of how powerful it means to actually listen to the customers, the suppliers, or the communities that you're serving. Because I think like when you're talking about value creation and creating those ledges, like really listening to people, it's so hard to overstate the power of that to identify the path forward. Is there an example or a story that comes to mind from your own experience or from experiences that you've observed where truly listening has unlocked a different path for folks or led to a different insider discovery for the path forward for the company? One of the companies I was advising, I sat on a few of their calls with potentially customers, and I quickly realized that the CEO was talking almost the entire time. And I had to sort of pull them aside and say, that's not going to work. You shouldn't be talking. You should be listening the majority of the time. You have to give them, you have to tell them something to get them excited and engaged. But then you really need to sit back and listen because what you're trying to do is get them to tell you what their problems are. And especially in the early days of a company, your engagements are all about listening and trying to hear and trying to tease out from what they're saying to what they really want. Because that's the key thing is honestly, in many cases, finding the right problem is, you know, is usually the hardest part. And so listening to those early engagement and trying to hear what is that real pain point that potentially you, your technology can address, and then figuring out how do you pivot to fit that. You see this again and again, being able to be agile and adapt as you get that early feedback and realize that what you thought their problem was, wasn't their real problem. And then shifting and, you know, one of the cases I saw this was really someone who was trying to bring this sort of um, GIS information tool. But when you talk to the customers, it was almost the more infotainment part that was actually more interesting. And when you stopped talking and listened, you understood that actually it was more the engagement entertainment side to make the tool adoption and use go up that was really more important than maybe the hard, precise, accurate data side of the house. That's a really great story to see the pathway there um, in terms of sitting, listening, and understanding what people really want. The focus of our conversation has been on this idea that for a technically differentiated startup to be successful, execution is one of the, the most important things to focus on. And you've helped us break down a couple key areas for people to direct their focus to, whether that's the proof of concept and MVP and helping them shrink the scope there, the idea of like having a value creation pathway and finding the ledges that you can break down to prove the value of what you're trying to do. And I think the, the power of listening, like you laid out, are, are really incredible ways for people to focus on. But this is also some of the, the big areas that you focus on with CMU's tech experience. And so I was wondering if you could, if you're open to it, give a little bit of a preview of what that, that experience is like and how you all support those early stage deep tech founders um, to help drive the, the execution of their, their vision forward. Um, can you preview and, and tease a little bit of what the program experience is like? So we went and worked with a lot of founders and a lot of investors to try to understand what are the pitfalls and what are the key things we want to bring. And what we've realized is you have to make that concrete. So we've been working to go talk to a lot of founders to get these kind of mini case studies so that we can recreate and kind of put you in that situation so that you can get as close as we can that firsthand experience of here's the situation you're going to be put into. What do you need to pay attention to? What's the decisions you're going to have to make? And where will that lead? 
our focus to a lot right now is creating that case study curriculum so that we can give you as much and make a first-time founder a little bit more like a second-time founder because maybe you didn't directly, but we are trying to simulate that for you so you can go into those with a little bit more context and the kind of situations you're going to find yourself in and how do you get yourself out of those situations. I really love the focus on case studies and applied practice because I have felt myself like I've fallen into situations I've never experienced before. And the hardest part is like the learning of something that you've never done before. And so I'm like wondering like, man, if, if only I had just a few experiences or, or at least like simulated experiences to get a sense of the concept and the application of it. I think that's so, that's so powerful. One of the things with that is trying to get a sampling of many case studies because MVP or IP strategy, it's so dependent on your specifics. But if we can get a handful of case studies kind of on a breadth of software, hardware, consumer, enterprise, so that hopefully the collage of a number of case studies can kind of give you something that you could extrapolate out for your specific case. Do you have a favorite case study? If there was like a, a little problem statement or headline, I'd love to hear it. My favorite case studies are often the, do I pivot or do I shut down? Because I think one of the things people don't think about enough in a startup is having a discipline about when you should get the signals to say, I'm actually in the wrong direction and we need to complete, you know, take a step back. Oh my gosh. Well, I, and it also, because it can be so emotional, I feel like that that's also the, the hidden thing is you can have your own identity or emotions wrapped up in the idea. And so I think beyond the signal, it's also the emotional part of, of making that decision. Oh, it's so hard when it's your, you know, you've made it from the beginning. It's so hard to look at something and say, yes, it's amazing. No, no one actually wants it. <laughs> you know, and anyone who's done this more than a few times, We've all had stuff that we've kept going too long simply because we loved it too much ourselves. And it's real discipline to say, I actually need to listen and take a step back and evaluate. Is this the right thing to do at this time? Absolutely. Quinn, we've got some rapid fire questions for you. If you're ready to jump into those. Yes, let's go. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? I just finished uh, Martha Wells' newest uh, Murderbot series, uh, System Collapse. I'm a big sci-fi reader, and that's one of my great escapes. I've recently uh, worked through a, a few of the books in that series, and plus wanting what you shared, loved every second of it. It was such a fun ride across all of the different journeys. It's like so easy to, to read them too. Like they're like good, efficient stories. Oh, they're very quick, and they're so entertaining. I'm going to have to follow up and ask you more, because I've been on you know a multi-year science fiction deep dive. It's probably the exclusive books that I'm reading right now. So um, I'm in need of refilling my queue. So I, if you have another one, I'll send you an email. I'd love to hear more. I highly recommend Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. This one has popped on my radar a few times. I have not read it yet. I am adding it to the library queue right now because I've seen it and I like, you know, I just haven't hit the button yet. So this is, this is the motivation I needed, Quinn. This is perfect. Next rapid fire question. What's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? I am a giant fan of the KISS methodology. Keep it simple, stupid. And, you know, especially when you're trying to do hard, disruptive things, everywhere you can keep it simple, you need to, because you've got enough of a challenge ahead of you. So that's what I'd say is my driving belief is always. 
Are there any founder resources that you found to be most helpful or impactful along the founder journey? The most important resource for founders is mentors, by far. Find people who have done it. Find people who know the space. And the amazing thing is we all think that no one wants to help us. They do. Um, you're, it's amazed me when you start asking for help, how willing people are to help. That is by far the most important thing for new founders. I, I love that sentiment of it's amazing how willing people are to help. People don't know that going in. And it's such a hard thing to feel until you've actually chosen to reach out for help. It's really hard to ask, especially, you know, if you're, you know, you're doing this, you been working on your own to go and say, hey, I need help. Most of us are very willing and all of us want to foster other entrepreneurs. The network, the community here is what's so amazing. It's what I love about living in Silicon Valley is just the ability to bump into people and share, collaborate. Absolutely. Two questions left. What is a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? The number one thing that I'm interested in is that we are still in what I'd call the brute force phase of AI. Our solutions are very computationally heavy. They're very simple brute force solutions. And I think the next wave of where we start getting algorithms that can do iterative and continuous learning and are much sort of more smart algorithms is going to change and drive the next phase of AI. I love it. Last question. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? I love Grace Hopper's quote. The most dangerous phrase in the language is, we've always done it this way. You should always question that because disruptive technology means we're going to do something different. I was going to say like a very apt way to conclude our conversation in the realm of helping inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs and founders in the advanced technology space. I think a very powerful word of encouragement for folks as they wrap up this conversation. Quinn, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time and your stories and to help focus us on the key areas to focus on when it comes to execution of this space of deep technology and building these next generation companies. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us. It's been my pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc dot c-o-m-m-u-n-i-t-y and we'll see you next time